0: Okay, Ben, welcome. How's it going? Good, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to see you. Let's start off with just giving everyone some background on who you are, uh, what you do. And you're somebody who went through a transformation of sorts and came out stronger on the other side, specifically related to mental health, mind fitness, whatever you want to call it, and now focus in that area. So talk about that as well. Like, A brief synopsis of your story as it pertains to that.
1: Yeah, sure. So currently, I'm CEO and co-founder of ReOrigin, which is a a program that teaches people how to basically reclaim their health by retraining their brain. And this was very much an outgrowth of my own experience. Uh, I was always really into health and fitness and just what the human body and human being was capable of. And in my mid-20s, as you kind of alluded to, I got really sick with a chronic condition turned out to be a bad case of neurological Lyme disease. And it was something that I just couldn't figure out with only my mechanistic mind with exercise and nutrition and these different things that certainly played a role. But there was this seemed to be this missing component, which had very much to do with the mind body connection or the brain, and how the brain basically serves as the chief orchestrator that regulates all of these organs and systems in the body. And so as I learned, as I went about this journey, sometimes when you are, uh, you know, confronted with a trauma or challenging experience or sick with something for a long time, the brain can essentially learn these overprotective responses and can learn to uh, increase immune activity and put out these types of responses that were helpful at one point during, say, an acute phase of injury or illness, but beyond that phase, they can actually be detrimental. And so long story short, found myself in this sort of vicious cycle of chronic inflammation, symptoms, medical treatment, and going around in circles. And uh, what landed me in bedbound for about three years, I slowly started to climb my way out of by retraining this what I now know to be the threat reflex in the brain so that my system could calm down. My body's self-healing mechanisms could come back online. And eventually within about 18 months, I was getting back to full-time health and work. And now about uh, nine years after that, having studied all this stuff and just become fascinated with it i've put together this uh, this program with a team of neuroscientists and clinical psychologists to uh help other people in struggling with a wide range of conditions ranging from long covid to lyme disease to fibromyalgia and anxiety even depression to some extent take this brain retraining approach to calming the nervous system and regaining health
0: that's awesome and I've used your program and I want to get into that. Can you back up a little bit and talk about the whole Lyme disease thing? How did you figure that out? Like what happened to you? I think there's a story about you surfing, right? (laughs) Where you sort of like lost the ability, like your legs kind of went out from under you. How did you, what happened there and how'd you figure it out? And did you know anything ahead of that? Or was it just a sudden switch for you where all of a sudden you felt these symptoms that you hadn't felt before? Mm, Yeah. So Lyme is a weird animal, you know, and it's really in the last decade, there's
1: been a lot more just knowledge and understanding of it in the mainstream, although from a medical standpoint, the understanding is still very limited insofar as how the pathogen, it's a bacterial infection transmitted by a tick, you know, how that can lead to all of these different symptoms that seem to express themselves in completely different ways in different patients. You know, in my case, I grew up in Long Island, which is sort of an epicenter. We have a lot of deer ticks and a lot of, a lot of ticks. It's just super prevalent. And so my sister and I grew up in, in Montauk actually. And, you know, frequently in the summer, we would pick ticks off of each other. And it was just, it was kind of a a thing. Like a lot of people, you know, had Lyme, but they would tend to get over it. There was a few people we knew that had really bad cases that, uh, didn't seem to get better, but, you know as as a young healthy person your system can handle a lot of stuff and um so in my case you know in retrospect there were some signs that i probably had it in my system from a very early age <laughs> obviously you know encountering a lot of ticks but also things like joint pain and and neck pain when i was 12 i was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis so you know little things like that And then it wasn't until I was in my early twenties, 23, 24, when I was doing a lot of things that were stressing me out mentally and physically. I owned and operated a surf camp on the eastern end of Long Island and we had, you know, 200 campers and power boats and jet skis and. Uh, windsurfing rigs and all these surfing, you know, big camp staff and everything. And it was a lot of fun and exciting. It was also incredibly stressful. And I remember, you know, during those uh, four summers that I ran that camp I was probably sleeping about four hours a night and getting up at four in the morning and checking the winds and tides and, you know, ordering the lunches and doing all that kind of stuff that a, you know, camp director <laughs> uh, needs to do. And in the uh in the off season i was working as a personal trainer uh you know working 10 hour days and uh then i would usually take about 6 weeks off a year to go on these what were not really vacations <laughs> they were actually more of the insane surf trips with friends we would travel around the world to different places and surf for recreation sometimes compete and on this one particular instance i was about 24 25 i was already feeling a lot of these signs of burnout and I was on one of these surf trips in Senegal, West Africa. And, uh, you know, as you described, I was actually surfing mid-competition uh, the day I arrived after, you know, an 18 hours of flying and very little sleep. And so my system was going through a lot, <laughs> more than it can handle. Uh, and in this instance, yeah, I was actually up riding a wave. My legs completely gave out. And it was like my nervous system just said, no more <laughs> you're done yeah. buddy we're we're cutting you off and um i, I remember just floating there in the water for you know maybe uh, felt like like hours it was maybe 5 minutes or so before i was able to start wiggling again and moving a little bit and just using my upper body to get myself back to this this island where we were uh surfing this reef off of this island which was about a what mile what did you
0: think there. what did you think right then what what did you think was happening I thought I was just exhausted from the travel. I
1: thought maybe I'd picked up some bug, uh, you know, some, I'd been traveling in a bunch of third world countries before and had some, uh, you know, giardia and intestinal dysbiosis stuff. And I thought there was just that kind of thing going on. And, you know, I thought, all right, take it easy for a few days, maybe get a good night's sleep and tomorrow everything will be okay again, you know, 24, 25, I hadn't really encountered anything like that. And I was used to pushing myself. So I thought I could just keep on, keep on pushing rest up and keep going. Yep. But days turned into weeks, turned into months. Uh, I did stay on that trip for another four or five weeks and had some okay days, had some low days, never felt good. But by the time I got home, I just collapsed into bed, literally seeing spots. It was like, as soon as I got to that point where my brain and body could, could rest and and return to safety, the nervous system just completely shut down. And I found myself in bed, just sweating profusely for, for days. And after, you know, a few weeks of TLC and chicken soup started seeing all these different doctors and the, uh, you know, regular GP led to the neurologist led to the cardiologist. And of course, the more you look, the more you find, you find, you know, heart palpitations and you find, uh, uh, brain lesions and spinal taps revealed high titers of Lyme in the the spinal fluid and brain scans revealed, you know, symptoms that, that looked very much like, um, multiple sclerosis, which was even one of the diagnosis I was given. And so, you know, Lyme is known as the great imitator. It just essentially deregulates the entire system. And so throws everything out of whack. And, uh, yeah, that was certainly <laughs> what happened in my case.
0: Were there other things going on that they found or was your case one where it was like, this is essentially just, just Lyme disease type of a situation?
1: Mm. Yeah, great question. You know, it's Lyme is a really bittersweet uh, diagnosis for people to get because on the one hand, it's a lot of people who uh, struggle with chronic Lyme. It's kind of a last stop. They've Doctors have found the symptoms long before they've found what is right. allegedly the cause, right? And so they're treated according to the symptoms and not according to any underlying cause. They're treated for things like POTS or postural orthostasis tachycardia, which is basically a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, or they're treated for... Um, uh, you know, for mold toxicity or for chronic inflammation or for insomnia or for anxiety, all of these things, which are expressions of an underlying condition. And so even the diagnosis of Lyme itself, on the one hand, when people get that, they're like, okay, I found, I found something that's, you know, sort of explaining why all these things are are happening. On the other hand, I say it's bittersweet because, it's not that doctors really know what to do with that or how to treat it. And furthermore, you know, what I started learning as I went deeper into this discovery and and realization that I kind of had to heal myself because there was no one doctor that seemed to have the answers is that, it's never just what's happening to you that's causing the dysfunction. That's to say it's not just the pathogen. So I, I mentioned Lyme, you know, is is caused by this uh, Borrelia or an often co-infections, a combination of bacterial, viral, and even parasitic infections. But it's never just the infection. It's also how and why your body responds. So in the same way that You know, if a cold virus breezes through a room of 10 people, statistically speaking, seven of those people will get sick or sorry, seven will remain healthy. Three of them would get sick and and symptomatic. The other ones might even get the infection, but they won't actually express symptoms. Similarly, you know, a lot of people are exposed to Borrelia and Ehrlichia and these co-infections. Very few of them actually get really sick and symptomatic to the point where their body is is expressing these symptoms and furthermore where it goes chronic. There was even a doctor Thomas Rao of a uh, really uh, great doctor of biological medicine has this clinic in Switzerland called Paracelsus and I went to a talk when I was trying to untangle my own you know experience uh, at the Marion Institute he gave in in Massachusetts and he said you know if you could pull people off the streets here this is in the northeast and you know test them he estimated that more than 40% of people would test positive for Lyme. That's to say, mm-hmm. you know, the presence of the Lyme causing bacterias. Now he also said, but less than 2% would actually get Lyme disease, which he defined as full symptomatic expression. Yep. And that's something that really got me thinking, you know, so the, the question arises then what is that X factor? What is that missing link? Why am I expressing? Why is my body expressing, uh, you know, the condition in this way where most people probably aren't going to be this reactive to it? And therein, you know, lies the search for the answer and the understanding that there is this compound effect going on. And they describe this so beautifully in biological medicine of this sort of barrel analogy where, you know, as human beings, we have an incredible capacity to deal with stress and toxicity and pathogens and triggers and traumas and all of these things that we are exposed <clears throat> to throughout our entire lives. But we also have a limitation, there is a breaking point. And, you know, I think in, in my case, just to relate it back to to how I kind of now realize or rationalize what happened. It's pretty clear, you know, that so the the lime was the straw that broke the camel's back, but the camel's back might not have broken if it wasn't already carrying such a heavy load. And so, what the lime did when I had that outpouring of symptomatic expression that lasted for years and sent me on this journey is it was a journey of untangling and identifying what is that load uh, that is you know stacking up and weighing down the nervous system and causing all these problems and making me so susceptible such that a 25 year old healthy guy well, healthy in quotes could have this little tiny bug come along and change everything overnight you know what what was creating that heavy load yeah. and so i had to really look back into you know the stress i was carrying the the childhood experiences the trauma the the things that were driving me to work so hard to to run myself into the ground, to not feel good enough, um, you know, past exposures, relationships, all sorts of things that were kind of acting as that heavy load that could then break when this tiny thing could come along. So yeah. And in, in biological medicine, they have this sort of like barrel analogy where they're like, yeah, we can handle a ton of stuff, but at some point, if things exceed our capacity to recover from them in a given period of time, that excess will overflow the capacity of the barrel. And that overflow is what we experience as all of this uh, symptoms and and dysregulation.
0: Yeah. The analogy I use is a Jenga puzzle. That's the way I think of it. So Mm. if you think of a human, you know what I'm talking about that those puzzles, it's a bunch of blocks. They're all stacked up and you and somebody else are pulling pieces out. And the object is to keep the puzzle standing Until one piece gets pulled out and the thing topples, and in that case, you lose the game. I think of what we're talking about, what you're talking about here, as the same type of thing where a human being is a Jenga puzzle, and over time, pieces get pulled out. And those pieces can be bacterial infections. They can be mold exposures. It can be trauma of some sort. It can be stress. And at some point, the final piece gets pulled out that topples the system, right? Mm -hmm. And what we do a lot, in my opinion, is we confuse that the trigger, which I would consider that last piece is the trigger with the cause. We say, "Yeah," and that was the case for me. My trigger was a mold exposure that sent my system collapsing. My nervous system completely collapsed with that. And I spent a lot of time trying to go after that as the cause of my issues. Where really, it took me a long time, years to figure this out. It's just one piece of the whole puzzle and it happened to be the trigger, but it wasn't even necessarily the strongest or worst contributor to my situation. And there were a lot of other things. In fact, when I think about your story, it sounds to me like the trigger itself is actually probably stress and just working yourself too hard. The line was kind of sitting there dormant, but the trigger was, was that you were kind of on overdrive a little bit and probably stressing yourself out. And I just think that's such a, it was such a profound, awakening for me figuring that out. And it took so long. And I think it's something we still struggle with on a societal level where people don't get that. We're so used to medicine being about a single infection, a single cause, a single disease, and a single cure that we don't think about how to solve chronic conditions. One thing you said that I want to go back to here is everything you talked about, you've mentioned the nervous system so much. And how does that kind of work into the picture here? Because that's one of my beefs, I think, with traditional conventional medicine these days is it doesn't really think about the nervous system as even part of your body. I think if you Mm -hmm. go into a doctor and you say, I think there's something wrong with my nervous system, there's no thought to how to treat that or even that it's a thing to some Mm -hmm. extent. And that's really how our mind and bodies are connected is through our nervous system. So you, yep. you mentioned that. Can you dive into that a little bit? Like how your nervous system gets off kilter, so to speak. How does it get injured and how does that then play into the bigger picture here? Because that's obvi- what I talk about here is is the mind and how important yeah. y- your mind is to your overall well-being, even your physical well-being. And that's so much what, of what you do at Reorigin. So can you kind of focus in on that a little bit on nervous system specific- specifically? <laughs> Yeah, so first let's let's
1: define what's the what is the nervous system and what's its role, right? You know, I mentioned that there are these two critical components of of health or or illness that it's not just what's coming at you from the environment, it's how and why your body responds to that. So, in between stimulus and response, as to say, you know, the infection and the symptoms or the event and your reaction to the event is the nervous system, is this information highway. And in there is the brain and particularly this part of the brain called the limbic system. Now, the limbic system is known as our threat detection and response mechanism. And its basic job is survival. If you look at a diagram of the brain or this, uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, uh, presents this great, what he calls the hand, hand model of the brain, where basically if you imagine, you know, holding up your hand, curling your thumb into the palm of your hand and then close your fingers around it, the limbic system is like your thumb. So if your wrist is the brain stem, the limbic system is that one of the first primal, you know, areas of the brain that formed, um, in our evolution. And it's simple job is it has this direct connection because it's so close just in virtue of its proximity to the brainstem. It's so close that it has this direct connection to be able to send survival signals uh, down the brainstem through the nervous system to all of the vital organs and systems of the body. And so essentially whenever we are met with, you know, it's called a stimulus, but any information or input from the environment this could be a smell, this could be a pathogen, this could be something that we see here, anything that's coming in through the senses, this limbic system makes a critical decision about it in that moment. It decides whether it's safe or unsafe. And if it decides that it's safe, the body will stay in homeostasis. There's these two branches of the nervous system. There's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the parasympathetic branch known as rest and digest is where we want to be for, you know, normal bodily regulation. The opposite branch is the sympathetic branch has nothing to do with sympathy. This is actually more about what's known as the fight or flight response. And if the limbic system has determined, uh, something from the environment to be unsafe, then it will mount this what's known as the stress response or the fight or flight response. And what happens is, you know, the body is a very intricate system of resources and resource allocation. We have digestion, we have uh, all of these things happening for, you know, procreation, for wound healing. It's it's an incredible self-healing system and self-organizing system but it is being directed by some other information which is coming from the brain from the limbic system and so if the brain determines that you know the body is under threat again if if that cold virus breezes through the room and the brain interprets that as a threat or we hear some sound like a loud noise and the brain interprets that as a danger you know type of response it's going to produce this outpouring of survival Outputs So cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, things that are basically geared toward, you know, mobilizing us for action. So blood, oxygen, nutrients gets shunted to the peripheral to the limbs, essentially, where we can use them to escape the danger. But at the same time, that comes at a cost. It The body will temporarily shut down these, what it has deemed as secondary functions in the, in the hierarchy of survival, things like digestion, wound healing and procreation to send that energy to the places where it needs to go to immediately escape and survive the danger. The problem is that the brain can sometimes get it wrong. (laughs) It can sometimes misclassify things that are benign as threatening. And when that happens, it can keep us stuck in this fight or flight mode, where now those bodily resources that we need for long term wound healing, tissue regeneration, digestion, and procreation are perpetually being misallocated toward, you know, the the things associated with this fight or flight response. So, just to give you know you example, I'm sure you'd be you know familiar with as as a veteran, someone who's who's served that. The brain is always making associations. Think of of two different people experiencing the same event. Let's say you have a, a New York City construction worker, and right next to him, crossing the street at the same time, is a, a veteran who's been in a, a combat scenario where they've associated loud noises with a life or death or you know life threatening situation. Now, let's say a car backfires down the block. So here's two different people experiencing the exact same event, to the person with, let's say, PTSD, that sound alone is going to be sufficient for triggering the fight-or-flight response, right? So cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, their body's going to prepare to mobilize to avoid the alleged threat, and it's going to shut down all of these uh, other systems that are needed to keep the body functioning healthy in that moment. Whereas the construction worker hears the exact same sound but his body doesn't even – the needle doesn't even move, right? Heart rate stays the same. Pupil dilation doesn't change. Um, cortisol, adrenaline stay low. He just stays completely calm because his brain has not made that association between the loud noise and it being something that's threatening. Yeah. So <clears throat> our, our brain is basically doing this all the time. And when we're in a state of high stress, the body – or the brain in this case, errs on the side of caution and can start to misclassify things that are normally benign as threatening things like even normal levels of, of mold or normal levels of, of chemicals or things in the environment or, or wifi, not to say that these are that there's not some elements of these that are harmful, but we all know that, you know, some people can certainly tolerate a lot of things. Not everyone has food sensitivities, It's only when we're in a hypersensitive state that we start to develop more and more and more of these sensitivities. And the more we develop, the more the brain learns, the more time we spend in that sympathetic state, which runs down the nervous system, the immune system, wears down these bodily functions, and leads to things like chronic fatigue, overreactivity,
0: and immune dysfunction. Is all of this automatic is it something I can control somehow in some way? Or is it just, I think about when something startles you, when you're truly afraid of something, it feels to me at least like it's automatic. Someone jumps out and scares you. The feeling you get, that sensation where your heart jumps up in your chest and whatever else you might feel, feels very much like it's automatic. I don't know that I can control that in the moment. Maybe you can tell me otherwise. But to me, it's then what you do with it, Afterwards, that's the situation there. So how does that happen? How does the brain, again, sort of learn that? You're talking about the difference between a construction worker and and a combat veteran who have these different interpretations of the same type of thing. right? Is that something that they have? It's just bad luck and their brain has automatically done that? Or are they actively contributing to that situation over time? Consciously. Great, great question. Normally, when we
1: talk about these types of, you know, reactions or responses, they are automatic. Now, the interesting thing is that, excuse me, through self-directed neuroplasticity, which we'll, we'll get into, and this is yeah. basically the, the ability that we have to, to regulate our own brain or to re-educate the limbic system. These types of responses can be retrained consciously. We can gain conscious access to even things like the immune system and the beating of the heart. So just to give you an example, you know, um, normally, uh, you know, you think of, of the heartbeat as, uh, unconscious, right? It's not necessarily something that's in, in your direct control, but it is in your indirect control. If you change your rate of breath or if you change right. your thoughts, right? If you think right. fearful thoughts versus if you imagine yourself on a beach, that also will change the beating of the heart. So, normally when it, when it comes to having the what's what's called the conditioning effect that is unconscious that is subconscious you know the combat veteran uh does not choose to react with the fight or flight response that is a a subconscious conditioning that takes place similarly you know to take it a step further he does not choose to perpetuate that response it has been learned it has been conditioned but with conscious awareness and a certain methodology of intervention, he can choose and through repetition to decondition or recondition that response for it to no longer take place. Yep. It starts yeah. with, with awareness. But I think one example that will really highlight this, and it, it's fairly important because a lot of people, when they start to learn about, you know, brain retraining and this concept, there can be this element of Well, is it, you know, are we saying that it's mental? Are we saying that it's in my mind or are we saying (laughs) that I'm to blame, right? That I somehow, you know, taught this to my body or, or failed to do something to prevent this from, from happening. The answer is absolutely not. This is a totally subconscious wiring that takes place. And to highlight this, you know, research goes back to the early 1970s. I think it was in 1971, a paper came out called conditioned immune suppression, where, uh, rats were given an injection of sugar water combined with a virus and their immune system responded as you would expect, you know, with um, mounting the immune response to combat the virus. So several times this was done over and over as a conditioning. And then what happened was they were just given the injection of sugar water, no virus present. And the immune system still reacted as if the virus was there. Yep. Clearly this is a subconscious reaction. The the rats did not do anything or fail to do something. It's it's a classical conditioning effect. The same way that Pavlov rang the bell and trained his dog to associate that with food and the ringing of the bell
0: eventually led to the dog just salivating, right? Subconscious right. reaction. Right. Fortunately, in a physical reaction, I think that's what's so important about that to realize is that is Again, that sort of mind—the mind-body connection. There, how how much that demonstrates that that Pavlov's dog situation. We don't necessarily always associate that. uh, That most people know that story or that experiment, but really focusing on what's going on there—the fact that a mental trigger, so to speak, an environmental trigger, has a physical response, salivating—is so important because you you can then extrapolate that out to. All sorts of scenarios where you think, hey, I'm having a heart attack right now or I'm having – I'm all dizzy and how can this – this has got to be some pathogen or something like that. Yeah. In, in some cases, we, we know that that's an exacerbating or a mitigating – it's not a mitigating, but that's part of the situation there. But understanding that, yeah, your mind, maladapted responses with your mind, with your limbic system can have dire physical consequences and physical effects – And I know for me, that was very hard to get my mind around to start. It it was like Mm -hmm. I had to keep searching for different treatments, physical treatments. And again, some of those were necessary, I think. And there is some work that needs to be done there. And you and I can talk about that as well, because you and I have both done some of that in addition. But so much of it can be done with your mind. And if you understand that piece of it, it will help you as well. It'll get you to that point where you can actually make progress with it. We right. I mean, am I talking correctly there with that? Absolutely, hundred
1: oh, percent. Yeah. We, we sometimes, you know, have this problem in, in uh, Western medicine, and way of thinking about things where we, we mistake the hand that's pointing for the moon, for the moon itself. You know, we think that if we're working on the level of the mind, that the mind is the problem or that the problem is in the mind. And that's what we're saying. And in fact, the mind in this case, is the access point it's sort of like the keyboard to the computer right when you type on the keyboard uh, let's say if you're a programmer what you're doing is you're reprogramming the computer you're not typing on the the keys you know the keys is not the end-all be-all it's not and if there's a problem with the code and you hit the keys it's not that the keys were the problem (laughs) and you need to touch the keys in the right way to fix the problem it's that you're using the keys to access this deeper level of programming yeah and so similarly Our access, you know, the same way I can walk someone through a breathing exercise or a visualization exercise and use that as the access to regulate the nervous system. That is merely accessing this, this, this bigger area, this, this control panel of the body. You know, we mentioned in the beginning that the brain is really the chief conductor of the orchestra. The the body is made up of a collection of, it's actually known as a cybernetic system, which basically just means a system comprised of more systems. There's an immune system. There's a respiratory system. There's a cardiovascular system, skeletal system, and so forth. And the brain is the thing that is ultimately directing all of these systems to coordinate their functions. Not only do they have to be individually coordinated, they have to coordinate with each other. And when they become what's known as dysregulated or you know separated in their function, they can start working against each other because they're receiving conflicting information. Right. The the stomach, you know, we're we're eating something, and so the stomach is receiving on some level information that there's food coming in, it needs to digest. But at the same time we're in that fight or flight state. And so it's also receiving this conflicting information, you know, that that energy needs to be applied toward fight or flight, toward running away from danger. Yep. And so what does it do? It comes at a great energetic cost and, uh, that cost can physically wear us down. Right. And, um, yeah. So again, it's one, it, it gets kind of trippy here. Cause once you start to think about all this, it can seem very complex. And when you think about, you know, using the mind to self-regulate, a lot of people get sort of, uh, overwhelmed at first or daunted by this task of, Oh my God, I got to use my mind to like put all these Jenga, puzzle pieces back together. Right. Yeah. In reality, it's actually much simpler than that. And we're, we're, we, and we want it to be simpler. Basically, you know, the body is a self-organizing system. And so what we're doing when it comes to using the mind is simply just getting it back on course, just giving it the right you know information so that the body can do its thing. It's very much like, uh, you know, in the ReOrigin program, there's a, a section in the very beginning where I I talk about your role in your healing and recovery process and how to think about it so as to not get overwhelmed by all of these details of all of these things that we think we have to regulate. And, you know, the basic analogy there is to think of yourself as a farmer. Your job is simply to set the environment, to tend to the soil and to create that optimal environment. So the farmer plants the seeds and waters them. And that's basically it. You know, He doesn't make them grow. It's not in his power to do that. It's not something that, that he could do. Similarly, the body has all of the innate intelligence that it needs to regulate its level of hormones, to balance the immune system, to heal wounds. You don't have to, if you get a cut on your finger, you don't heal that cut yourself. You don't do anything it heals itself when the conditions allow for it to heal. Yeah. And so our role is very much to set those proper conditions to reestablish this, you know, a uh, flexibility in the nervous system to oscillate between sympathetic and parasympathetic. And then, yes, of course, to, you know, set the environment as well and to, to nurture ourselves with good food, with good stress management, with sleep and things like that. But it's not, we don't have to go overboard thinking that we have to be the doer of all of the, the the healings.
0: Yeah, a couple things, and then I want to really get into reorigin and what you're doing with that and how you came up with that. Two points from the previous discussion here. One is the other thing that I literally only zeroed in a, on in maybe the last couple months about the limbic system. I completely understood. That idea of fight or flight and the way that sends blood to your extremities and not your digestion and all of that made sense. But it also suppresses your immune system because short-term acute infection isn't as important as the life-threatening situation that's in front of you right now. If you're sick, if you have a cold or something like that, and you are now running for your life – your body is like, right, running for your life right now, saving my life is more important than the cold. So we're not going to worry about that right now. And I honestly didn't think about that and zero in on, huh, maybe part of the reason I can't heal from some of these pathogens, bacteria, viruses, is the limit. I'm self limiting my own ability, my immune system, because of what's going on with my limbic system. And I just never focused on that. And I think that's such a key aspect to this that people that are chronically ill might not consider at times. It's like, that's a big piece of it too. You've got to allow your immune system to work here. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting off this sort of limbic system loop that you've got going on. The other thing you mentioned was blame. And you sort of, I think you didn't, you didn't say it directly, but it's one thing that I see in a lot of circles of people that are talking about various chronic conditions. It's, there's a lot of trying to find blame or it's almost like relieving you from blame or it's like it's not your fault this isn't and that's an okay message but to some extent i my attitude has always been i'm not worried i don't care about blame that mm-hmm. doesn't help me in any regard and to some extent it's almost good if i'm to blame because that means i'm in charge of the solution and i think that that's it can be empowering to some extent it's not disempowering to me when i hear hey you can overcome this And when I started to get into some of this neural retraining, like you can actually take charge here. You don't have to necessarily go out and find a doctor that's going to do X, Y, Z to you or a drug that you've got to put in your body. You can affect change here. To me, that's really empowering. And I think you can flip around the whole blame idea and take it on board as like a good thing to some extent. And again, I would say most of the time, it's irrelevant. Pointing fingers, unless it gets me to a solution is not helpful. I don't care at at all. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I just want to make that point because it's something I think people that are stuck in these situations or afflicted by these conditions, sometimes I think we miss the mark with that. Mm -hmm. And we get too fixated on that idea Mm -hmm. where it's more like, well, what can I do? Let's worry about that and not worry too much about where to point fingers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, to, you know, to your first point, um, about the, the immune system and immune suppression, uh, yeah, that, that paper back from the 19, 1971 titled, uh, conditioned immunosuppression kind of says it all, right. That these, these rats had been, uh, basically through classical conditioning, trained or their immune system had been trained to function in a different way. And, uh, as it comes to, you know, creating the optimal conditions for healing one doctor that actually helped us create the reorigin program years ago, wide, wisely said no pharmaceutical or supplement will ever be as powerful as your body's own immune system. So if we can get the immune system back online and just doing its thing, yeah, that's, Essentially, gives us the best shot <laughs> at, yeah. at kicking out whatever uh, you know came in and and uh, might have just acted as that initial trigger, um, and might still be running amok because this is where things get kind of cyclical and vicious cycle. Right, if something comes in as a trigger, but then there's all of this you know uh, tail end conditioning effect going on, whereby now the fight or flight response is active, the immune system is is less active or less capable of doing its job. Now the environment, our internal environment has shifted to be favorable for these types of pathogens and, you know, conditions to sort of take hold. But now getting into your second point, when you realize that you actually have control, more control than we ever thought possible before over your own nervous system and how that can regulate your immune system, now this becomes sort of exciting and empowering because it says that through things that you can actually do, you can start to change those underlying conditions. You can create a new internal environment, one that's less hospitable to pathogens and more hospitable to you as the the host, as the human being. And yeah, I felt the same way. You know, I think where the, where the blame stuff comes in is I think, I think a lot of people when they're, going through this kind of thing, whether it's something like Lyme or fibromyalgia or now like we're seeing with long COVID. The problem is that these conditions are very, not very well understood. And there's a lot of common experience where people are even told that it's just all in their head or that it's not taking place because, right. because the doctors, well-meaning as they are with their limited tools, don't necessarily see or understand the link that's that's happening here. And I think when people are coming from that place where they've been repeatedly told that they're not sick or that their symptoms aren't real, I I understand that frustration that's beneath the surface. I've I've been there myself. But I also agree with you that once you understand that there is this conditioning and this learning effect taking place and that you can now – you can be the one to teach your brain and body a different response, that is tremendously empowering. Yeah. And – yes, it takes, it takes a leap of faith. It takes a sense of responsibility and possibility, which again is also some somewhat counter to the way Western medicine is, is practiced where doctor heals you, you go to the doctor, they, you know, find the problem, give you the solution, usually in pill form. And then that does the trick. Now we're saying, actually, you know what, you are the athlete here, (laughs) you know, you you can have doctors or programs or people that can help guide you, but you have to run the race. You have to do the things that are going to right. rebuild your system and and give your system the right signals um, so that it can come back online. But yeah, I think for for me and people like yourself, when you when you get that and you understand that that it's very much in your own hands, sure, it's, it can be scary at first, but it's also really empowering. Totally.
0: Yeah, it's that, funny you use that analogy. I use the same one all the time, which is if I want to get in physical shape and I enlist a personal trainer, the trainer is teaching me how to exercise properly or giving me some guidance. But I've got to do all the work. Mm-hmm. They can't do pushups for me. They can't run for me, none of that. And it's the same thing with your mind. If someone, a therapist or something like Reorigin comes along and teaches me how to do some of these things with my mind – I've still got to do the work. It's not, the therapist, when I'm sitting in front of, they're not doing it for me. They're opening my eyes to some things. But if I'm going to change and adapt and evolve, I'm the one who has to do the work. And I think that that's sometimes lost on us when it comes to mental conditions is that, yeah, ultimately you're the one who's still got to do the work behind this. There's a couple other points that you made in there one it's i'm going back a little bit here but i want to i want to get these out before we really dive into reorigin and what you're doing there and how it works mm-hmm. one is i i loved what you said about the the fact that there's certain things in your body your heart rate and even your digestion where you can't consciously directly change them but you can indirectly change them and to me that's always been through breathing or that's at least the one the biggest way that we can sort of indirectly change that. And it's one of the things that I talk about where breathing is something we do automatically. It's going to happen no matter what, but we can consciously slow it down and change it. And it's the kind of the only thing where we can do that. But the nice effect that it has is we can then sort of indirectly change other systems in our body through that. And I think that's why breath work to me has been so vital and so important as well is that, Am I correct with that? Is that, or are there other mm-hmm. things that we can do? And Reorgin, I think does some of this, but in terms of our systems, is there another way that we can do that? Or is to me, breathing has always been kind of the the keyboard, so to speak, right? Like that's mm-hmm, the thing mm-hmm. I can regulate yeah. a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, so there's a lot of ways we can do that, which we'll get into, you know, in, in a moment we have five senses and we can make use of all of them to feed oh. new information to the limbic system but the breath is incredible because it is both automatic and in your own control and um i once heard it said that anxiety is breathless excitement and you know that when you feel <laughs> anxious right? i like that <laughs> yeah you, you the th- first thing people do when you have a fear response is hold your breath and that's actually the opposite of what we want to do or need to do in order to let things flow yep. and so i mean this is actually something i'm curious to tap into your uh experience and knowledge with you know seal training and stuff but you know there are things i just heard of like tactical breathing where it's basically you know just continuous breathing be breathing on a, on a regular rhythm such that you can even easily do that or access that when you're in a high stress or high performance situation, because the last thing we want to do is, is hold the breath because that builds up tension, builds up anxiety, sends us into fight or flight where, you know, that those resources are not only diverted away from things like immune function and wound healing and digestion and those things, but also cognition and the ability to think straight and plan and be strategic. And so in order to be level headed, and have access to those, those faculties. We need to keep that breath yeah. flowing. And that is something that is very much in our control. And it, it actually becomes an interesting practice, I think, to, to do that in, um, in high stress or high stakes situations. Yeah. So yeah, for me, you know, the, the breath was, wasn't inroad, but yeah, I'm super well, curious. Well, just the breath work
0: thing. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a lot. I think from my military background, I've done more in terms of various breathwork techniques afterwards, specifically with my chronic conditions, overcoming those. I think it's a lot like meditation, where meditating, to me, is about trying to make you more aware the rest of your existence. It's not about the 10 or 20 minutes. That's sort of the training. But the idea is not to make that time, that very small window of time, better, so to speak. It's so that you're more aware the rest of the time so that you can mm-hmm. tune into what your thoughts are doing right now during this conversation or when I'm driving down the road or in, I'm in the middle of a meeting. It's becoming more focused and aware and noticing your own thought patterns so that you, they can better serve you. To me, the breathing stuff, there's hacks out there. There's things like Wim Hof and there's ways that there's a lot of stuff you can do with breath to raise your core temperature and he like walked across Antarctica within bare feet or something, <laughs> He did something like that. So there's some really effective techniques. But for me, what it is, is about becoming more aware of, is my breath serving me in my day-to-day function? I started to notice things like, to your point, I'd hold my breath just working in front of my computer during the day. I'd find out or I'd notice that it's like I'm holding my breath a lot. And that's the kind of thing that I'm wanting to change. so there can there's some calming techniques to do in general as sort of a training exercise, but hopefully that's making me more aware of like how how much better can I get my breathing the other twenty three hours and fifty minutes of the day? Obviously, I can't do a lot when I'm sleeping. i don't I don't think so anyway. but whatever it is, my the sixteen hours that I'm awake during the day, can I notice the way I'm breathing more often? And try to make it effective. Can I make it relaxed and open and breathe through my nose and not my mouth? Those types of things mm-hmm. I think is where it becomes really powerful because it's – the the effect that it can have on your body then is really important. And it's you're going to get a lot more out of it if you are better at it 8, 10, 12 hours a day than just 10 minutes, right? That mm-hmm. like has a much bigger impact. So to me, that's what it's really all about. Yeah, absolutely. It
1: has a transferable effect that I would say actually would carry over into your sleep. You know, if you're probably right in those, in those 12 to 16 waking hours of the day and you're consciously doing that and making it a developing, you know, getting to the point of automaticity, which I think is always where we want to go. It's basically the place where you don't have to think about it. You just are breathing normally or 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 ideally uh that would certainly carry over in, into the subconscious and into sleep. Um by the way there's a great organization out there called normal breathing <laughs> and uh they're i think based on Boutico and a lot of a lot of like advanced russian research about breathing and they did some interesting studies with just this one metric of what's called the morning control pause. So morning control pause or the MCP is when you first wake up in the morning and you exhale naturally not overly but you just take an exhale like you normally would to get you know the air out and you hold your breath at that point you start counting and what they found was there was a direct correlation between people with chronic illness and having a low mcp versus you know uh, vital health and athleticism and having a higher mcp And I think the threshold was somewhere around like 20, where like people who are low around like 12 seconds, it's a little bit hard to calibrate and gauge at first. It takes a little bit of practice, but basically what you want to do is, you know, first thing in the morning, when you become conscious, take a few normal breaths, exhale, not overly, just a normal amount. And you hold your breath at the bottom of the exhale. So with less oxygen in your lungs and at the first impulse you get to breathe, you stop counting. And what they found across the board, they even on their website, they have this like, uh, you know, map where they show these different chronic conditions and where people fall oh. 12 seconds versus 16 versus 20 versus 40. And of course, athletes are like in the 40 realm that they can hold their breath in the negative for about 40 seconds before they have that first impulse to breathe. Yeah, they found over uh, three, four decades of research, all these correlations. And so their approach is normal breathing. You know, learn and train normal breathing, and that will have this carryover effect to bodily efficiency and resource—you know, efficient resource allocation. Fascinating stuff.
0: Does it? That is interesting. Does it help to train it at that moment to try to hold it longer? Yes.
1: Oh, great question. No. So actually, it helps. Yes. So the idea, the aim might be, or the the measure of success, you could say, might be that morning control pause. But the way to increase it is not necessarily to practice the morning control pause. Okay. It is to practice what they call normal breathing. Okay, got it. Got and they it. have the butiku method, you know, that's basically um, slow, steady, deep breathing, nose breathing, uh, right. you know, things like that. But you, you you know, do some of this uh, breath work and then you use that morning control pause as your indicator for, okay, am I moving in the right direction or the wrong direction?
0: Yeah, really interesting. It's funny, yeah. I one of the things I tell people as a first step to mind fitness is taking stock of where your mind is very first thing in the morning. That's I think something that's so easy to do. It takes like two minutes, but instead of just swinging your legs out of bed, running off to whatever you're going to do, take two minutes and just notice where your head's at and try to set it up for intention at that moment, Mm -hmm. because it's such a, you have that opportunity and you shouldn't waste it. And I talk about that a lot of just, trying to notice what those first thoughts are because a lot of times they're unhelpful. It's like, I don't want to get up right now. It's early. We have these sort of automatic thoughts like that and replacing it with something that's gratitude and intent. That's typically where I like to go with it, but getting in that practice and you can sort of retrain your first thoughts to some extent to be much more useful for shaping up the rest of your day.
1: Yeah. Couldn't agree more.
0: Okay, so let's launch into Reorgin specifically and talk about what you've developed here. Where did this come from? How do you go about developing it? And, and what does it do for people?
1: Yeah, so Reorigin is is what we call a self-directed neuroplasticity program. And I suppose we should just define neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is basically just the brain's ability to change. And it's the reason why we're able to learn new skills, new languages, because the brain is constantly creating new connections. So it's actually changing its structure and function uh, with all of the new inputs. So I once heard it said that everyone on the planet probably has a Tom Cruise neuron, meaning that we're able to anyone who's able to recognize his face has literally developed a neuronal connection.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. I, I was wondering pattern. where you're going with that. <laughs> that could have gone a lot of different directions. I, it, I realized He's that
1: Okay, just take it like any celebrity, any face, any pattern that's widely recognizable is recognizable or identifiable because you have a previously created neuronal connection yep. that. You know, if we didn't have that, then every time you saw someone's face, you would have to figure out who they were each time. So to avoid the hassle and to be efficient, brain's first order of business is survival. The second order of business is efficiency. It creates these neural networks that allow us to easily and readily access information. So as it goes into reorigin, how we use neuroplasticity, you know, the brain... And sometimes you use the word maladapt before it can have these responses that might be adaptive during one time. We'll take that, uh, you know, combat veteran as one more example here. So in combat, it is an adaptive, that's to say a life-saving response to associate loud noises with danger because hearing that loud noise will alert him to get to safety. Now, when he gets home, it becomes maladaptive if that system stays active because now <clears throat> he's being set off by, you know, hearing cars go down the street and fireworks and things like that that are not life threatening, but his brain has already made that, that neuronal connection. So in some, some sense, neuroplasticity has taken place. And what, when we talk about self-directed neuroplasticity, now we're talking about the conscious act of retraining the brain or creating a different neural connection that's going to be specifically more beneficial for staying in that parasympathetic state, for staying in the state of rest and digest, where the immune system can function its best, and we can ultimately be in that optimal state for healing. And so, you know, this this premise came about through my own experience when I was stuck in that vicious cycle of chronic Lyme. And we talked about the breathing, and for me, it actually... My first inroad into the notion that we could perhaps direct how we feel and function was by taking one deep breath. And I even gave a Ted talk with the title, One Deep Breath, because it had such a profound impact where my, some inner wisdom in me, I like to attribute it to, uh, when I was having a moment of just sheer panic and terror, symptoms were at their worst. And then my mind was spinning up all these you know, worst case scenarios, never being able to walk again, you know, you name it. I was just in, I was in it. <laughs> Some inner wisdom in me just prompted my body to take this huge deep breath. And right on the other side of that, I found something that I hadn't been able to access for, for years, or maybe even a lifetime, which was this little tiny space of pure peace and bliss and relaxation. And I was like, wow, that was interesting. Where did that come from? So I started doing it consciously and it started being my one conscious practice because there wasn't very much that I had control over, but I realized I had control over my breath. And so by consciously taking that deep breath and finding myself in that little moment of peace afterward, I found that that moment would gradually expand and I could get there more reliably. I could stay there for longer I could start slowly but surely doing things I had a little bit more cognitive space I could start <laughs> listening to audiobooks and podcasts and uh I listened to this book the brain that changes itself because at yep, the time one of my most, yeah prominent things was brain lesions and brain damage was one of my, my most worrying symptoms because these things are are said to not be able to repair themselves that, so
0: can I sorry can I pause you there real quick Mm -hmm. That's incredible to me. Was that a a physical, was that from Lyme or something else? Or was that like a mind situation? Like was, was the limbic system response causing that like lesions? Or was that a thing with Lyme disease with this bacteria specifically that was causing that? Or do you even know?
1: Yeah. So there's actually very little that's understood about why lesions form in the brain. Certainly, it has to do with neuroinflammation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: whether it's actual infection that's crossed the blood-brain barrier or not, not very much is known. Um, I did have high titers of Borrelia uh, or you know the, the antibodies to Borrelia in the spinal fluid. So that would be in the brain fluid. But yeah, what actually causes lesions are still even to neurologists uh, somewhat of a mystery. Okay. Um, but yeah, the assumption is definitely there was a lot of um, neuroinflammation and encephalitis going on there that were just. But creating. you don't
0: have them anymore, correct? Like that's all correct. gone at this point. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So that's what was <laughs> baffling is after you know going down this road, which started with the simple breathing stuff, and then as I learned more, reading books like "The Brain That Changes Itself," studying at uh, NYU on Medical, uh, some uh, neurology and techniques that they would use on, on even stroke victims to regain the, the, the use of, of limbs that were, you know, that they lost access to, uh, after strokes, I started this series of practices throughout the day of sort of getting in that gap between stimulus and response, and then tilting my brain or body in the direction of a chosen response, a more desired or beneficial or, or you know, response that would feel better as opposed to this fight or flight mechanism. And little by little, step by step, my mind started really coming back online. My body started having more energy. I was able to even pursue some treatments like in biological medicine that I was previously, you know, far too sensitive to, uh, to pursue prior. I was able to make changes, you know, add things into my diet that, I probably needed to support me nutritionally that I couldn't before due to extreme food sensitivities. So little by little, it was like you know one of, one of the themes in my TED talk was was doctors and people asking asking me you know what did it what was the one thing what right that's always the, take, right? Yep. It's always the question yeah always a question what did it and it was like well <laughs> if I had to say if I really had to summarize what did it it was that one deep breath and particularly getting in the space between stimulus and response. But in reality, what did it was that expansion of capability to be able to then change my nutrition, change my diet, change my lifestyle, change my mindset, like every aspect of myself so that my body could, you know, change and, but that goes one, back
0: to that, the thing I was saying where that's, we're like conditioned to think this way of it's, oh man. here's the one problem. Here's the one solution. And I get that question as well. Like, what was the one thing? It's like there, there isn't one thing. It's mm-hmm. all of this stuff put together. You're trying to redevelop yourself and that takes time. And it's like a slow at, it's like asking someone when they get if they went from being really out of shape to being in shape, like what was the one thing it's like, I spent a lot of time tweaking things and tweaking my nutrition and I slept more. It's like, there isn't the question doesn't even make sense as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And
1: it's just, why do you think it is? We we think that way, you know, you see these articles in like uh, men's health and, and even New York times where they're so black or white. I saw an article a while ago where the title of the article was stretching good or bad didn 't find what type of stretching, who was doing it, or why uh, you know sometimes you see these things like okay if you 're trying to get in shape what 's better uh, uh, high intensity training or bench pressing it's yeah. like <laughs> why, why do you think we, we I just, we I just think
0: we questions. like simple solutions we like things to be black or white i mean it 's the reason why we are polarized with politics and anything else. It's like, are you a yes? No. Is it, are you for this or against this against this? Are you part of our team or not on our team? We're just, for some reason, the human condition likes that. We like putting things into boxes so we can say bad, good, healthy, unhealthy, evil, good, whatever the two categories are. And we, we struggle with gradation of things. We struggle Mm -hmm. with the idea of it's, that's not the way most things are. People Mm -hmm. aren't, good or bad. We all do things that we shouldn't do. We all do great things as well. And some more in one category and more in the others. Things aren't it. it, I don't know. I don't know why we're conditioned that way, but I think getting over it is really important. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to these, these things we're talking about right now, our health, both our mental health and physical health, I think it's really important to understand the subtleties here. And the fact that it's, I go back to that Jenga puzzle. It's not, there wasn't one piece that did it. It's all of this stuff that collapsed Mm -hmm. the entire system. You've now got to really work to put every single block back up on this tower. If you're going to rebuild it, Yeah, it's not going to come from a sole source. It just won't.
1: Yeah. 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 And so, you know, with, with reorigin, it's, it's sort of like that initial inroad. It's, it's, it is that first, uh, it's building the foundation such that when you now go to rebuild the tower, you know, you're building it on a solid place. And, um, yeah, so it it really came from that, that experience I had of being able to at first very subtly shift my bodily responses, but then learn that, Hey, there's actually medical science, you know, that goes with this. This is being used for, for stroke victims, for people with phantom limb pain, with chronic pain. And so as I started to use this and get into it more and more, it started to work better and better. I just got fascinated. I, I think I just have that kind of mind, even from a young age, I would, you know, as a kid who always like took the phone apart and just wanted to understand how, how things worked. And after about 18 months of really practicing this, going deeper into learning more and applying more, uh, you know, techniques, I was pretty much from, from three years bed bound back to full-time work and health. And, um, you know, it's still, had stuff going on that I was continuing to work on. But after a few years after that, I was really 100% healthy. And now for the last eight or nine years, I have been, you know, it, 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 that whole journey that I was on is, is, is merely a footnote. It's not something that I am physically still, you know, dealing with in any way. Yeah. And so of course that curious mind got to work and was like, all right, this is, this is pretty cool. How can we consciously, you know, um, Create this and structure it in a way where, where people can take these kinds of steps. And fortunately, I, I, my first job after getting back into work was working with this company, innovative medicine that does these, these uh, interesting biological medicine approach, you know, treatments. And they also do a lot with the neurology and the nervous system. And so I was a uh, sort of uh, coordinating events and. For eight years, like a sponge soaking up, you know, meeting with doctors from all over the world with with um, neuroscientists and clinical psychologists and medical doctors and biological doctors and energy healers, like all sorts of people coming together in one room and just absorbing all of this this information and. Uh, assembling also a team of, of doctors and scientists that we call the brain trust, who ultimately within the last couple of years helped put together this, this program, which is now the reorigin program, um, which is essentially, you know, the, the, where it falls in that spectrum is not necessarily the medical treatment, but it is in this nervous system retraining, this brain retraining to get yourself out of that fight or flight state and to basically, you know, decondition those old learned patterns, that would otherwise keep the body in that dysregulated state.
0: And can you get into any, I, obviously I don't want you to give away your sort of proprietary methods here so that <clears throat> people can go off and do it on their own without subscribing to your system. But can you get into kind of the the rough overview of how, how it works? What do people do? How long does it take on a daily basis? What, what does it look like if I want to go, if I think I need something like that, Mm-hmm what kind of commitment am i signing up for
1: yeah sure and and by the way i'm happy to share you know these these techniques and things there's there's sure there's some proprietary aspects to them but really you know the the reason for the program and the community is to is to help teach people how to do this right there is a fair amount of nuance in the same way that you know if you you know decide that you want to become an athlete there's quite a bit to learn in in terms of the exercises, the techniques, the programming, the, the pacing, all of these sorts of things. And so Reorigin is very much like that. And we have we have group coaching, we have an online video program that teaches you not just these exercises, but all of the nuances to them. But you know, fundamentally, what's happening is I mentioned that the brain is always making associations between two things. And and it's it's basing something coming from either the internal or external environment external environment would be like a loud noise or a smell or a substance internal environment would be like a feeling a symptom or sensation and based on those it's interpreting whether or not it's safe or unsafe and somewhere down the down the road when people have experienced this sort of chronic condition and they feel like they're just stuck in this fight or flight state the brain has learned that to associate those sensations with unsafety and perpetuation Mm -hmm. of the stress response. And so essentially, what what we're doing is we are replacing that stress response, we're retraining the brain to understand that it's actually safe. And the basic tenets are, you know, we, we've put this into a five-step protocol whereby you basically in step one, you want to become aware of what's going on. When is it and what is it that's triggering you? And what is that, what is that experience of being you know, triggered? Number two, you want to kind of step back from it and realize, or what we call dissociate from it, realize that it's just a reaction that's taking place. It's not saying anything necessarily true about you or the real world. It's just a learned response. The same way that ringing bell caused Pavlov's dog to salivate. There's nothing inherent in the bell that is saying you know salivate. It's his association with the bell as me- you know being meal time. So it's under the actual just intellectual understanding of that. Turns out to be quite important for starting to recondition because remember we said the limbic system is, is this part of the brain that's closest to the, to the nervous system. The neocortex is the part that wraps over the limbic system and that is able to override the limbic response. So by intellectually understanding, uh, you know, as a sort of second step, once you've been, just been aware of what you're feeling, understanding where it's coming from allows you to start to dampen that limbic response. And the third step would be ultimately to replace the response with something that's more relaxing. So this is where, you know, these somatic exercises come into play or breathing or visualization, or these different things that can, again, through a secondary means, start to regulate the beating of the heart. And even through a secondary or maybe tertiary means the immune system. And then finally, we want to not just do this one time or be able to do this one time. We want to condition this as the new default response. And this is where the neuroplasticity training differs a little bit from say meditation or, you know, stress reduction techniques, whereas meditation or just breathing or stress reduction techniques are very good at helping us return to baseline in the moment As it turns out, the challenging thing is to remember to do them in real time. You know, I myself experienced that I got very, very good at meditating well on the meditation cushion. Right. Then once I got back to work, right, I had to walk through Times Square every day. Not so good at at staying regulated, walking through Times Square. And so how neuroplasticity differs is it's not about just uh, calming the stress response, but actually undoing the reason why it becomes aroused in the first place. So by creating a new association, let's say with all the people and sounds and smells of times square, it is possible through conscious work and through techniques like this to create a different association with that scene I could see that scene and experience that scene as this very combative situation where I have to fight against these smells and scents and people and sounds and you fight my way to work and it puts my body in this very vigilant state. Or I can look at the scene of Times Square and I can see it as this flowing river and myself flowing with the traffic patterns and flowing down that road with it. And if I, I can mentally rehearse this, I can practice it in real time and the impact that it has on my physiologic state is is very profound. So essentially with reorgin what we teach people to do is really twofold, you know, going back to that barrel analogy, that total load. On the one hand, we want to reduce that total load so that we have more wiggle room, more buffer uh, against things from the environment. But then more specifically what we want to do is sort of like poke holes in the bucket so that it no longer fills up so easily in the first place. And that poking holes in the bucket is kind of analogous here to creating different associations with whatever it is, is keeping us triggered, whether it is a loud noise or something in the physical environment, whether it's even an internal sensation or symptom that's subconsciously keeping that stress response going or a negative recurring thought or rumination pattern. All of these things can keep us so-called dysregulated and put us in this state that is suboptimal for healing. The good news is that once we become aware of this and Reorigin walks us through a process of kind of mapping these loops out so that you can then move on to reconditioning them, retraining them to the point where you can actually be present with all of the things that would otherwise throw us for, for a loop. And through gradually exposing ourselves to them while at the same time keeping the body in this calm state, the brain eventually gets the message that it can stay at ease. It can stay in the state of, you know, uh, homeostasis uh, while still encountering these even uncomfortable situations.
0: And how long does that take, right? This isn't something that happens overnight. And I think... Mm-hmm. That goes back to the way, way we want things. We want to take a pill that fixes me overnight or in a couple of days. And I think with the fitness of our minds, it just doesn't work that way. It's the same way as the fitness of our bodies. If we're mm-hmm. extremely out of shape, it's going to take a long time to get fit, especially if we want to be really fit and compete yeah. at some level. And what I like in this type of situation, certainly my situation, to having a really out of shape mind. My mind was extremely unfit and that's not going to change overnight. It's not a technique I can just adopt, do once or do twice or do a couple of days. So what does it look like from a training standpoint? How long does it take? And, and what's the commitment from a daily perspective too? Because this, this is something that it's a, it's a practice that you mm-hmm. have to commit to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. I just want to caveat one thing you said that I, I wouldn't see it necessarily as the mind being unfit, but rather the the whole system, you know, the whole body is a collective system, the nervous system, the immune right. system. They've. I should all- say,
0: uh, yeah, sorry. I should clarify. I think of it, it's a mind-body unfitness. Yeah. To, yeah. to me though, the reason why I do this content is because it's, in my estimation, it's mind-driven. So it's everything is the the driver. That's the inroad. Correct. Yeah. 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 Good point. Good point. Thanks for clarifying that.
1: Yeah. So, and, and to your point of, you know, look, people are coming in with all sorts of different conditions. We have people coming to reorigin who just have been struggling with long COVID for the last year and a half to people that have been dealing with fibromyalgia or late stage Lyme disease for 20 years plus. And so obviously based on who you are, what you're struggling with. Um, how long you've been struggling with, it will certainly determine, you know, the the time that it takes to, um, to, to really get the full benefits of this training. But we can define what those full benefits are. And in the program, we define it in three phases, which are basically isolate, integrate, and improvise. So you could think of just like learning a musical instrument, there's this first phase where you have to practice in an isolated manner or any skill. So let's say you're learning to play the guitar, you isolate every single note. You also have practice in an isolated way where you have your practice sessions or your sessions with your coach or teacher, and you're learning each individual note. That's the first kind of phase of learning. Once you've developed a certain proficiency there, you move on to the second phase, which is to integrate. Now you can integrate these individual notes and chords into, you know, scales and melodies. So now you're starting to make music. It's it's actually putting this into use. And the third phase that we always want to get to is improvisation. And this is where you've reached automaticity. That's to say you you no longer have to think about it. You've encoded these skills and these notes and patterns into your system. You know, if you think of a guitar player or, or piano player, what is the difference between someone who can, you know, sit down to let's say a keyboard and play chopsticks versus someone who can play concerto number five, right? It's not a physical difference. It is a neurological difference. That's right. Yep. And there's even been these great studies of prisoners in war, prisoners of war who have been, uh, you know, stuck in places for 10 years who just through mental rehearsal to keep themselves occupied, practiced playing the piano. And when they came out, having not touched a keyboard in a decade, were far better than they were going in. Right. And this visual rehearsal is used for elite athletes and, and so forth for, for the same reason that because what we're training is these nervous system, you know, patterns. So similarly with reorigin, there, there are these three phases, isolate, integrate, and improvise. And in the first phase, you are very much just learning this technique or this series of techniques to reprocess signals and sensations in the brain and body, uh, that the brain was previously processing or interpreting as threatening to now reinterpret them as benign so that you can stay not in that state of breathless excitement, but of breathing fluid motion with respect to whatever it is that's been triggering you. And that that phase we usually find takes about 30 days for people to really practice in this dedicated manner. This is where, you know, group coaching really comes in handy for people, you know, in terms of timeline or time throughout the day practicing this five-step protocol as we have it set for, uh, say, three 10-minute sessions per day or 30 minutes a day you know, in a very dedicated manner is usually what's required during that phase. By that point, after usually around 30 days or so, it becomes sort of habitual. People really, they don't need to think about all the steps of the process. It's like they're starting to, to get it. It's starting to happen. Now you can move into this second phase of integration Now you're integrating it into your everyday life. And we have a a more condensed short version of the the technique that can be readily deployed in the moment. So, you know, we always still encourage people throughout the duration to keep practicing for those 30 minutes a day. But now it's like taking your skills off the the jujitsu mat and taking it out into the world where you can kind of like deploy it in real time when you need it. And that's that integrative integrate phase. And then finally, usually around days like 60 to 90 is when we see people get to this state of automaticity or improvisation where it starts to happen on its own. And this is where people realize it happened because, you know, they'll come up against uh, something that previously might've triggered them and the trigger will have passed and they'll realize maybe an hour later, huh? Oh my God, look look at that. I, I ate that sandwich and nothing happened. Or, oh yeah, I heard that, that loud noise go by and I didn't even react to it, you know, yeah. and, and it starts to become entrained. And that's that sort of like improvisational level. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that is very much the goal of, of, uh, of reorigin and neuroplasticity. It's not to perpetually manage people or give some tool to people that they then can use to perpetually manage themselves. It is to reestablish this innate ability of self-management that the, the brain and body always have. That simply gets thrown out of whack whenever we get knocked down through the school of hard knocks and overwhelmed by stuff. So yeah, that's, that's really kind of how it plays out. And we see that, you know, people make a tremendous amount of headway in, in about 90 days. A lot of people keep going for six to 12 months. And, uh, obviously things happen in life. You know, you, you travel, we're exposed to new stressors or pathogens. And good news is you now have this ability to deal with it. Even myself, you know, uh, people ask, do I still use these techniques? How do I practice it? And, and generally, you know, I have a lot of tools in my toolkit of, of breath work and everything, and I don't necessarily do or need to do like that 30 minutes of dedicated practice a day, but life is always giving you bigger and better challenges. And if I travel and go to a conference and have to give a big talk or something, and it's this new level of challenge, well. I can just go back to that rung of integration or even isolated practice, you know, for a few days or a period of time to, um, to prep myself to handle that new greater challenge. So I see these tools as just an incredible, incredible thing to have in the toolkit for not only reclaiming your health and returning to baseline, but ultimately being able to even go far beyond that when you really get back into the, the swing of life.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you. You mentioned the various conditions that people tend to come to this type of training with, whether it's fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic Lyme. How much of that do you think is basically the same syndrome? I I often think about this where I don't know that we we try to put things in boxes and categorize them and make these distinctions. And I'm not so sure that essentially all of those, the things that can be treated with this type of an approach and that varies, and I think it's a really a wide spectrum, I think they're essentially all the same thing. It's They're different, the the response anyway, right? What's going on with your body might get triggered in different ways, but it seems to me that those are all essentially, getting back to your sort of original point, some type of nervous system dysregulated syndrome, something like that. Is that accurate? Is that what you find with these things, or is that your assessment of – why those conditions that we call different things, we give different names can basically all be treated the same way.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, in the latest estimates, 75 is quite a range, but 75 to 90% of doctors' visits are to, due to stress related conditions. So it's not to say that stress is the problem or is the cause of the condition. We know that actually stress itself is not necessarily bad. Distress is bad. <laughs> it's when we perpetually yeah. and negatively react to to stress. But to your point, yes, you know, and there's been a tremendous amount of research, a lot more needs to be done, but they all tend to fall under this category whether it's, you know, late stage Lyme or long COVID or Also known as, you know, post-viral fatigue. And again, a lot of people are looking at long COVID as this new kind of thing and they're scratching their heads, but the research goes back to the 1970s and 90s, even a lot of stuff in Gulf War syndrome came out. People came out of combat with having been exposed to different chemicals under a stressful situation. And it's all a, a flavor of a similar underlying condition which has been given many different names over the years self-perpetuating inflammatory conditions has been one name sears or chronic inflammatory response syndrome has been another name nix or neuroimmune conditions has been another name you know you again we we all like to put it in a box and give it a name but it's all basically an attempt to explain this condition or this state in which the body gets somehow stuck reacting to its own reactions it experiences certain symptoms that could very well have initially been catalyzed by a real or external externally caused pathogen or injury or or illness but then what happens is the brain and body learn to interpret the symptoms themselves as threatening and this starts this ongoing stress response, whereby now symptoms lead to increased levels of inflammation to combat what it thinks is the problem. And that increased level of inflammation causes more symptoms, which cause more, you know, subconscious uh stress and anxiety, which causes more inflammation, which causes more symptoms. And it just goes around in circles. And this is in every way a, you know, self-perpetuating vicious cycle. And so our role and our job and something that we can do with our own brains and minds is to understand that this is what's taking place and then learn to systematically interrupt this pattern and interject a new pattern that I, I noted. I said in my TED talk, we can basically create or transform this vicious cycle, which is really destined for disease, into a virtuous circle that can be designed consciously for health and well-being. Yeah. So, I believe it's really it's really in our hands and it starts with understanding what's happening here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting Which- you mentioned that you the you likened the instrument, learning an instrument type of situation. And I I use that analogy a lot as well because when I think of my own struggles over time specifically with anxiety, once I realized that essentially what had happened was it was my response to thoughts. That was the problem essentially there in terms of anxiety. And it's something I learned essentially over time. So unconsciously or consciously, but it was a, it was a learned response. And the question was, okay, if I can learn it, can I unlearn it somehow? Yeah. And if I think about that in the context of an instrument, it's to me, it's sort of like learning the piano, but learning bad technique. Mm-hmm. I can't – if I learn the piano, I can't really unlearn it. I'm going to know how to do that. I can't sort of forget. But what I can do if I've learned crappy technique is I can work on that to get the technique right over time. But it's hard because once you have programmed yourself to like, let's say, put your index finger on a certain note when you're going down a scale where it's supposed to be your thumb – you keep making that mistake over and over again and you have to slow down and you have to re so that's the way I had to think of that whole thing. And that's how I think of this entire process. It's like, you're not going to unlearn something that's really hard to do. In fact, I don't even know how you would do that. You'd have to take, do, I don't know how you maybe get hypnosis or something to forget, (laughs) but what you can do is relearn it, relearn the response and develop better patterns for how you react to these things. And it's, that's what your system does. And I, I really like the mu- – I'm a musician, so I really like the musical analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, even what you said about the learning and then integrating and then innovating is something I talk about as well. I The ways I break it down are learn, sol- learn solve, create. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what I use in terms of do- actually sort of moving forward with your mind. But we're talking mm-hmm. the same language in <laughs> a lot of these yeah. things in different ways. Yeah, totally. So we've been talking for 90 minutes here and I think I could talk to you for another 90, but I do (laughs) want to be respectful of your time. Can we just wrap up a little bit with the other things that are out there? And you mentioned it, the innovative medicine is something, and that's actually Mm -hmm. how you and I got linked up. I think was uh, Mm -hmm. Freddie Kimmel reach. He he was the one who introduced me to you and you got me linked up with that, those folks in on long Island and did sort of that. How I just want to, to the extent that you're willing, how getting into for people that are really suffering from some of these conditions, Mm. how how much of it is this is where it gets tricky, right? When we try to separate mind and body, when we separate Mm. out, this is a mind thing, this is a body thing, and they're they're so integrated. But in your estimation, how much is it one or the other or, or how much can be attributed there? And if someone feels like they need to go and do some other treatments out there where they're Mm -hmm. under the care of somebody who's potentially doing some things that are unconventional. And I think for most chronic illness people, they find themselves faced with that situation at some point. What's the right approach there? And then how much of it potentially, how much can that help? How much does it help potentially? I know it's different for everybody, but I'm just, want your thoughts on that because it's something you and I have both experienced I did find it helpful. It does take a leap of faith, as you've told me in the past. Mm-hmm. And you have to put your trust in people's hands. And if you're doing things that the conventional mainstream thinks are crazy or unfounded or unscientific, how does, how does one approach that? Especially if they've been faced with a situation where conventional medicine hasn't seemed to work for them or hasn't given them a lot of answers. And I think that's just something that a lot of people struggle with.
1: Yeah. 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 So, so first of all, you know, there's, there is this false sort of dichotomy that, that we form of like, should I address the mind or should I address the body? Right. Right. Well, you have a mind and you have a body. So, you know, why not support both? And it's certainly a question a lot of people have when they come to, to reorigin. And we always say, you know, first and foremost, start with the low hanging fruit, rule out any other, you know, current active, issues or infections, or, you know, if, if there's anything, you know, really blatant going on, of course, you want to see, uh, you know, medical doctors and rule these things out. What we're really talking about is this, this category of, you know, wide growing category of, of people or patients who are experiencing a lot of symptoms beyond the normal phase, right? They get a cold or they get a flu and the, sure the, the week or two go by and they feel crappy, but now it's getting into months or years and they're still experiencing these symptoms and they go to their, their doctors and there's no, they can't really put their finger on any real cause. So this is the, the just to frame the category of of a person or where these people are at with their health that we're kind of, uh, you know, speaking to now I think, you know, treating, treating yourself from the angle of the neurology, the, the mind aspect of it and supporting your body are, are absolutely, uh, you know, compatible and even mutually beneficial. One hand feeds the other because the body is not going to be that receptive to, to certain treatments and things. If the nervous system is not in a relaxed state. In fact, one of the things they talk about it and they, they use as one of their diagnostic criteria at innovative medicine is something that's from European biological medicine, uh, known as reactional modes. And I bring this up because I think it's, it's fairly important and will highlight bridging the gap between, uh, you know, something like neuroplasticity training and then, you know, physical, uh, medical treatments. Biological modes, I'm surprised they don't understand this in the States, but in Europe, they look at these uh, four different types of of what they call uh, reactional modes. And basically the way they describe it is, you know, it's, it's a person's ability to detoxify, to let things flow through their system and come out of them. Hmm. And the analogy they give is like, if you think of someone who can, you know, go out drinking all night, <laughs> and wake up the next day after two hours of sleep and be fine. Right? I used totally to be able to do him. that. I, right, same here.
0: I'm 47. That's not happening anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, that person would probably be a reactional mode one, meaning they're phenomenal excretors. their Their bodies are just, you know, uh, really good at separating out what's helpful from what's harmful and excreting or ejecting what's harmful and getting them back on track. Then you have someone like, is usually the patients that we see or people we see at at Reorigin and like they see it at Innovative Medicine, who maybe you take one sip of wine and your brain fogged and hungover for three days. That would be more like a reaction mode four. The yeah. body is very jammed up, and so one of the things that they they aim to do is to actually shift, help people phase shift that reactional mode. So it's basically like shifting from that more sympathetic drive to a more parasympathetic state where the body is first and foremost now more receptive to any treatment that they would then do down the line. And for that reason, they actually, they recommend the reorigin program to a lot of their patients because it, yeah. it goes hand in hand. <clears throat> it's going to make their therapies work better. But, you know, to, to your question, yeah, I, I think that for anyone, if this resonates with them, you want to be able to support your physical body uh, in the best way. And the interesting approach that they take there, which really resonates with me, and I think aligns with the Reorigin approach, is that it's not about managing patients or people. It's about reestablishing the person's ability to self-manage. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's that, Love that.
1: fundamental biological medicine principle that starts with the premise that your body has the innate capacity to be healthy. That comes from you. (laughs) You don't heal the cut on your finger. Your body does that when the conditions um, allow for it. And so really all of their treatments, you know, funny or different or strange as they might seem are ultimately not aimed at treating the condition, but helping the person. Come back to their, you know, optimize their healing capacity. So yeah. I think if you take this two pronged approach where you're supporting your body, you know, with treatments that make sense to you, you're supporting your body with proper rest and nutrition. And then you're, you're using this neuroplasticity type training to replace, like you said, those bad habits or those old learned, you know, uh, wirings with new beneficial responses that seems to be a winning combination for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a video on their website from Heather who, and I've always found the testimonials from various things where someone says like talking to you when you, I was struggling and you were, you said, I'm a hundred percent better. I was this low. I was bedridden. And now I'm, I actually have a quality of life better than what I had prior to that is so inspiring. And I think that's what a lot of people that are out there struggling with various conditions look for and watching her video and then actually reading her the long version and the transcript. One of the things that really jumped out to me was she was, she had gone through this treatment working on all these different things. And then she was doing follow-ups and they kind of kept getting back to Hey, you got to work on the emotional piece of this. You got to work on the kind of your what's going on in your own mind, basically. And it was like 18 months or two years on where she was like 90% better, but couldn't quite get to the finish line. And finally, I think kind of realized it was a belief about her health where she was still clinging to this idea of I'm somebody who has these conditions instead of somebody who had these conditions and it was like a light bulb went on. And as soon as she made that jump to, Oh, I am a healthy person Mm. that finally got her over the finish line. And I think that's such a critical thing. And I know it is for, for someone like me, my own situation like that. Like I had to finally go, I'm not someone who suffers from anxiety or I'm not someone who has a chronic condition. I'm somebody who had that. And That's a big leap of faith, especially when you still feel that way. And I think it's so critical. Like if you're someone who suffers from panic attacks or something like that, you have to start believing you're someone who doesn't have that condition while you still feel that way, while it still happens. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with. But the second you can really start really believing, no, that's that's not what I am. That's not who I am that will then in turn impact the way you're responding to these things. And that'll eventually heal you out of that situation. But you, you, you have to believe it before you actually feel it, which is mm-hmm. an interesting thing. And I think it's so, so critical. And it just kind of like wraps up, I think what you've been talking about this whole time. And it was, to me, it was, it's, it's always like kind of the final piece of the puzzle, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. identify as somebody who has this problem. If you're ever going to get beyond it, whatever that problem may be
1: hmm. I- exactly right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's that's why I think, you know, a, a big portion of the Reorigin program, the first section of it is about just understanding what's happening uh, when you feel the type of any type of response or, or reaction that's maladaptive, because that allows us to do the really important first step which is disidentifying from it, which is so yeah. key is what you just hit on, what, what Heather did when she said, I no longer identify with that. I am not this sick person. I am a healthy person. And in fact, it's true in almost any given scenario, any given time, even if you're when I was at my worst, I would say 97% of things were going great in my body and in my life, right? The fact that I was every day waking up and breathing and being alive you know, there are three trillion reactions taking place in the human body that if they weren't taking place in exactly those precise ways, I wouldn't even exist. So you could say probably 90 to 97 or 99% of things were actually working in my body. But of course, as, as Kierkegaard says, when you have a, you know, the entire world goes sour when you have a pain in your thumb. So when that few percent of things goes offline and you feel symptoms or symptomatic, all of a sudden now it becomes your identity. It swells up to, I am sick. I am anxious. I am this this problem. And it is that identification with it that actually perpetuates it. But let's take, you know, panic or anxiety, for instance. And the moment you realize like, oh, I'm not anxious. I'm not, you know, panicked. There's chemicals that are flowing through my system. That's it. Now you can step back from it. you can experience those chemicals it doesn't mean that they're preferred or pleasant. you can experience them, and their natural half life their natural tendency to diminish over time and restore your your yourself to homeostasis will be enabled to to occur It's only when we get hyper vigilant about our own vigilance that we keep that loop going yep and so yeah I, I think the belief is such a huge component of it and then in training that consciously in our mindset and the people we surround ourselves with. And, you know, for that reason, the reorigin program is not just a, a program. It's not just like a DVDs of info that you get in the mail and you passively sit back and watch it. There's also this community component to it, um, that I kind of designed, you know, or tried to design the community that I really wished I had when I was going through it, where what was available to me at the time was a lot of support groups, which for a time were helpful to, commiserate with other people who could ex- understand what I was going through but when I came to that point where I really wanted to go beyond and get better I realized that I had to leave that I had to stop identifying yes. with a Lyme right. patient right yep. or a fibromyalgia or whatever yep. it was or MS patient <laughs> and I had to start identifying with the healthy me yeah and so you know a big portion of the the Reorgin program Even from the neuroscience perspective is stepping foot into this community where people see themselves as being healthy and they are really living in accordance with that belief. And it has this tremendous impact where, you know, just like all ships rise on the ocean when the sea level goes up, everyone kind of lifts each other up instead of looking to each other to reconfirm why they're still sick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll just let me close kind of on one ex- one personal example of that uh where your system and that approach really helped me a couple months ago when I was when I was actually going through that treatment and and some of the things that can get shooken up there you can have sort of uh some psychological effects from it but i was sitting in the airport going to fly back to long island and i had a panic attack out of nowhere apropos of nothing like no proximate cause and i think that's the case for a lot of people where I just had this. I literally was about to get on a plane. <laughs> I'm sitting at the terminal and this sense of doom just came over me. And because I've done these types of things, reorigin and, and had that type of training, my response was, okay, like that's interesting, but I'm not going to get wrapped up in it. As much as like you, it's weird because like you're feeling that way innately but you can still sort of step outside of it a little bit and and just look at it objectively. And my thought was like, okay, this is happening. Not going to kill me. Nothing really bad is going to happen here. I'm just going to let it run its course and try to be interested by it, but not give it any fuel, not feed that. And because of that, and because of that response over time, it doesn't happen to me anymore. It Like occasionally I'll get a little bit of that, but again, but over time that gets less and less and less. And it's also a situation where I don't worry about it, where it's like, okay, if that does happen, if that happens today, I'm still going to react with, all right, whatever. So what? It's not going to mm-hmm. do anything to me. And anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because it's that those types of situations that have been really helpful, thanks to your program and, and that type of a, of an approach. Yeah.
1: Yeah. More often than not, it's the anticipation of something that, <laughs> you know, leads to the, 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 the real struggle about it. Like that quote's been attributed to a lot of people, but it's something to the effect of, you know, I've, I've known a great many pains in my life, most of which never happened.
0: That's right. Yep. yep. All right. Well, Ben, this is awesome. Uh, great stuff. Really appreciate it. I think, I think, People will hopefully find this really enlightening. Uh, anything else you want to discuss that we didn't get to in the conversation that's relevant to Reorigin or your story? Is that
1: no? Just just to say that first of all, you know, thank you, Chris, for for having me on. This has been a pleasure to to have this jam session with you and, and chat. <laughs> jam um, session, yeah, yeah. Really enjoyed it. And you know, for anyone that's experiencing something like this, if they can resonate with this. And if you're feeling stuck, you know, I just really would love to put out the the message that you're not actually stuck that your brain and body uh, its nature is to change and to adapt. And that even though it might've been perpetuating a lot of the same cycles and leading to the same types of reactions in the past, there are definite things you can do to shift that and create new Cycles and new experiences in the future, and coming from personal experience, I, I know what it's like to feel stuck and to be stuck for for years. And uh, I, I also know that it's entirely possible, not only from my own experience, but now seeing seeing having seen thousands of people, you know, come through places like the Reorigin program and and places like Innovative Medicine as well, you know, radically transform their their brain and body's responses and how they are able to now feel and function in the world. So just if I could offer that, that bit of hope, that's it. And of course, for anyone interested, you could check out Reorigin. our, our website is re origin.com, uh, and check out our program and see if it's the right fit for you. But that's it. This has been great. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I was going to ask you where people can connect with you, but it sounds, are there any other spots out there on the internet that they can connect with you or yeah, mainly we're, just we're all, go to the website?
1: Yeah, we're all over the interwebs. I just started a YouTube channel. I'm I'm getting into the joys of video creation and stuff. So that's been an exciting journey for me. And that that uh, handle is also Reorigin. It's Re Origin uh, or YouTube slash Reorigin. We're on Instagram as well at Reoriginofficial. Official. And um, yeah. Check it out. Awesome. I'm, I'm always super active on these platforms. So if you leave comments or ask questions, you know, I, I love that and love to hear what, what questions people have and always get back to you and yeah, just enjoy carrying the conversation forward.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Ben. You got an amazing story and I think it's fantastic that you've taken it and turned it around and made it something that other people can get better with and an actionable thing. So thanks for everything you're doing. Keep doing it and appreciate the conversation, man.
1: Likewise. Appreciate it you. Yeah.